Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Raj Gupta, one of the founders of Allium Capital Management. Our keen-eyed listeners will remember that we've spoken in the past with regard to their market neutral strategy. In this episode, we're speaking specifically to Raj about the Allium Alpha Fund, a crossover strategy that invests in both listed and unlisted companies, mainly with a focus on unlisted companies looking to IPO in a reasonably short amount of time. The strategy is also technology focused. We speak to Raj about his background at Goldman Sachs and what he brings to the table with that background, as well as the background of his founders with a similar type of history. We talk to Raj about a chance meeting that he had at Goldman Sachs with Jack Ma that proved to be influential to him. We talk about his outlook for technology markets and companies and trends in the coming year. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I certainly do. You're encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and be reminded that this isn't specific advice and people should seek their own financial advice before making any investments or contemplating such investments. Please keep your emails coming. You can email your feedback and suggestions to me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. Raj, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thanks for having me, David. Raj, perhaps you could start off for our listeners just giving us a background of who you are. Sure. Um, Rajiv Gupta, uh, believe it or not, I was born in Wales. Uh, I was raised and educated in Australia. I started my working career in Singapore after having spent a long time trying to find a job in Australia. I was not successful, so I was successful in Singapore. I moved then to the US, then to Hong Kong, then to Melbourne, back to Singapore, and now I've been in Sydney, which is home for the last five years. Along the journey, one wife, four kids. Uh, with regards to the career that I've had, I started my investment career at Goldman Sachs in the mid-90s with a focus on technology, analysing and investing in both public and private companies. Um, I had the privilege of meeting Jack Ma from Alibaba when he was still a teacher, and he was mulling the building of Alibaba at that point in time. Uh, the firm I was at, Goldman, advised him. They invested in him. I was the most junior person on the team. And it's, I reflect back on my career, and that's probably one of the highlights. And luckily for me, it started early and got me interested in technology. After 10 years at Goldman, I moved to an investment hedge fund, focused on technology investing. After a few years of doing that, I got the itch and I wanted to build a technology firm. Um, I thought that I might be the best person to do so, but it was 1,312 days of pain, lots of it learning. Uh, we ended up being somewhat successful by finding investors and selling it to them. And that precipitated my move back to Australia five years ago. Uh, in 2016, my two partners, Jason Rich and Michael Considine, they'd been colleagues and friends from our time in Asia and the US. We began Allium in 2016 with a view to being tech focused and specifically a pre-IPO fund. We wanted to be a catalyst to more companies ultimately listing on the Australian Stock Exchange and we've had some more, we've had success with that and I'll talk more about that uh, as this conversation plays out. Um, as a group, we've got a very complementary skill set of both listed and unlisted investing 
In addition, the experience that we've all had at big global firms like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, you know, we're trying to bring best practice and a fresh perspective for companies that are wanting to raise capital. We love what we do every day. I don't think I could do anything different. I love who I do it with. And, you know, one thing that I live by every day and I have since my first day when I started at Goldman back in the mid 90s, the partner that I reported to said to me literally at you know, 7.45 in the morning, uh, just after we started, he said, Raj, just remember during your working career, you've got to aim to be a rising star, not a shooting star. And that's what we try and do every day here in, in our organisation. Terrific. That's a good introduction. Now, many of our listeners will be familiar with Allium having had uh, Marty on talking about the market neutral strategy. I think it'd be worthwhile, Raj, if you could just touch on uh, Jason Rich and Michael Considine and their sort of backgrounds and what sort of complementary skill sets they bring to the firm. And I think then we can focus more on the alpha strategy that we'll, we'll talk about. But maybe if you could talk about their backgrounds and how that fits together. Jason Rich and Michael Considine are both highly accomplished. Uh, three of us are partners at the firm and we founded it. Jason started his career at Goldman. Uh, he was on the equities desk. He then got hired by a fund to build out their investment uh, practice. He traded very successfully for um, more, a more capital entity. He did that for several years in the UK. He did that here in Australia. Jason's multifaceted in terms of his skills, but he has a really good read on markets and positioning. Uh, he does a lot of our listed investing that we do in the alpha fund. But when it comes to even private investing, he's so good at picking themes and picking what will work from an investment standpoint. And so he does that incredibly well. With regards to Michael, again, also highly accomplished. He was a, he's been a trader for all his career. And that's how Jason and I met Michael when he was at Morgan Stanley and used to run the trading desk in Southeast Asia, he was our point person. Michael's very good at understanding flow and positioning as well. So we've got two guys in particular that are very strong at public markets, positioning, thematics. And I think a combination of all three of us when it comes to private investing is probably not that different. Again, it's about what works, what we think will work in positioning. Um, so if I were to break it down as a group, in many ways, Jason does our trading and risk management for the fund overall. Michael will spend a lot of time with our investors and with a lot of our private assets. I almost exclusively just spend time with our private assets, finding them and then investing in them and then managing them as they go to be becoming public over time. Thanks for that. Maybe you could talk uh, a little bit about the alpha strategy, what it does, what it seeks to do. I think it's just come up to four years. Maybe you can talk about its track record um, as a next point for our listeners. I think that'd be helpful. Absolutely. Um, so what the alpha fund does, it focuses on finding companies that want to raise pre-IPO capital to accelerate growth and ultimately list on the Australian Stock Exchange. We like to call ourselves a crossover fund, which both invests in listed and unlisted assets. So we're wedged between what venture capital does, which is really early, take a lot more risk, make big wins, and then may have several losses. And then PE makes much larger investments, much more concentrated, and they get much more involved in businesses. 
we're generally sitting in between, wedged between both, generally passive, and we don't go too early. But we want to get a lot of these companies to becoming listed assets over time. So what we have done in the Alpha Fund is we've invested in companies that are broker-sponsored and generally short duration, meaning less than a year or 18 months. And some of our successes there have included Totomic, Big Tin Can, we had Aroa Biosurgery last year in the depths of... Um, COVID, Atomo, Telix, Damstra, Aerometrics. These are all businesses that we backed as pre-IPO investors. What we also do is we invest in companies that know that they want to do an IPO, but they need guidance and some handholding. So some of our successes there have been Nitro, uh, KTIG, and then also Cash Rewards, which became a listed asset in December. And I was closest to that one. So let me talk about how we help them and this is what we do. The founder, Andrew Clark, 61 years old, came to us a couple of years ago and said, I think I wanna be a public asset. He'd never raised any external capital. Um, we looked at his business, spent a couple of weeks on it, amazing traction, amazing metrics, but capital management just wasn't his thing. So we were lucky enough to invest in the business when it had a valuation of around $15 million. Raj, what did the business do? So Cash Rewards is a business that does loyalty. So you go to Cash Rewards, you can deal with 1,500 merchants like Dan Murphy's, Apple, uh, Coles, Woolies, and you click through to their sites. And what ends up, you end up buying, you may buy your grocery, for instance, from Coles or Woolies. You make the payment to Coles and Woolies, but because there is a tracking mechanism through Cash Rewards as the conduit, to finding that deal for you, they get payback from Coles or Woolies. So as a member, if I spend $100 on Coles through Cash Rewards, Cash Rewards will probably give me 7 to $8 back in my bank account. And that 7 to $8 has come back from the supermarket as effectively a referral. So it's a referral system, but to the consumer, it's cash. It's cash in your bank. And they've got... 880,000 consumers in Australia that use it and very few people have heard of it. Um, so coming back, David, just to the journey came, uh, David, uh, sorry, Andrew came in and source. We gave him some money. Uh, we invested, we joined the board. We helped him add to his board of directors. We then introduced him to the investment banks. He then did another capital raise, which was then at you know $35 million. Um, we then decided that he needed a new CEO. So we introduced him to a couple of recruiters. They ended up finding a person from Quantium, which is Australia's largest data analytics company, because this is a data company in many ways. He came in, the company did a pre-IPO. So this was, we'd effectively gone in pre-pre-pre-IPO, but we knew that we could make, make it public because the numbers were so good. Um, that raise was done at $67 million in October of last year, October of 2019. It listed on December 2, and today it's a $150 million market cap. Right, so we've been on that journey with that business for a couple of years, but we invested sub-20 and you know, you know, we've had a good return on it. But we want to find those types of businesses whereby the hidden gems, the management don't know what the journey means of going public, you know, hiring a bank, hiring lawyers, hiring accountants, auditors. Jay Smick and I have done it all of our careers. So that's a value add that we provide, but we'll also do ones that are broker sponsored because they're generally shorter duration. Um, every day in the alpha fund, 
we're meeting probably two to three new companies that want to um, raise capital and consider going public at some point in time. It seems to us that the environment in Australia is just, it, it's lush, lush for company formation and creating disruptive businesses. That's why you've got you know, great businesses in Australia that are global today. Um, since inception, we've had about 20 companies that have become ASX listed assets in the Alpha Fund. We feel very confident and comfortable in the next couple of years that the assets that we have today will end up being you know, hopefully multi-hundred, if not multi-billion dollar valued businesses. So our whole job and role, David, is to find these businesses with great managements, great products, good traction, and bring them to the ASX's listed assets. And Raj, what's the size of the Alpha Fund? What's the size of it in quantum of funds and how many positions would it usually hold? So today we're at $235 million. Jace Mick and I started four years ago, as you rightly pointed out at the beginning, with $7 million of our own money. So it's been a good journey for us. We've had supportive investors. Um, as it stands today, we've, we have just under 200 investors. Uh, no singular in investor is more than $10 million. So we've got really good distribution. Um, we think this fund and capacity of it probably taps out at circa $250 million or thereabouts. Again, the market can get bigger, in which case we would probably follow it. But to, for us to get optimal returns and have impact, we think we're getting close to our ideal size, but we may raise other funds in the future. The fund today holds about 45 private investments. And of those 45 that we're holding today, uh, one's actually listing tomorrow. Um, we have another one that's listing in February. We think we'll probably have eight to 10 that list this year. We think that's about the right size. As we circulate out of some of our companies that have gone from pre-IPO to being listed, I think 40 is probably the maximum that we want to hold on the private side. In terms of the public side today, we have around 12 companies that we're holding. And many of these are companies that we have had list and we've been a scrode and we're selling out of. Jason is also exceptional at finding really good assets that are listed that have become orphaned in many ways, but they have great catalysts. So we're holding a couple of those as well. And and Raj, um, will you typically, th those listed ones, will they typically only be ones you've held or the occasional um, uh, company that you've found that's an orphan unlisted, um, Will you typically buy in, will you trawl for those sort of unlisted positions often or are you more focused on the unlisted private companies looking to go through the IPO, IPO chain? We will over time end up doing more in the public space because we do feel, so if we reflect back on when we started, when we started there were 160 listed technology companies. Today they're in a in excess of 250. So the universe has increased significantly. There was no technology sector back in 2016. You know, there was Seek, real estate and car sales. Now those guys are still in the top 20, but you've got Afterpay and others that, and Zero that have become much larger businesses. So inevitably when the audience set increases, there will inevitably be some companies that are forgotten or mispriced. So we feel that as a team, given that we did it for many years, that we have a really good sense and 
a pulse of what's going on in markets. We've had a, the addition of a new analyst in the last year by the name of Sean Hardy, who joined us from Fidelity, highly accomplished. We're able to trawl through some of these assets that are listed that are just forgotten about. Um, we did some research last year, David, that showed that you know 20% of companies in technology that were listed broke price immediately. Right, so when they break price, they get, you know, the flood of selling. But at some point in time, if the businesses stabilize and they start generating good revenue and even EBITDA, they're cheap assets. So Jason last year was looking out for a lot of assets that were trading, you know, seven to eight times earnings, but just didn't have a lot of liquidity. So we're willing to take that liquidity risk if the business is good. And in 2021 in particular, I think we will generate pretty good returns from that space, in addition to the companies that we will have listed out of the portfolio. So if I were to split it up, maybe we get to equal distribution in 12 months from now. And from a portfolio management standpoint, what would be the maximum percentage allocation to any one position you would have in the portfolio at one time? So we hold no more than 10% in any one single position. And we think that that's relatively safe. We don't want concentration in anything. You know, we have been taught as a group collectively in our previous careers and what we try and do today, you want distribution. You want distribution in terms of size. You want distribution in terms of P&L. So we don't think it will ever be more than that. And in many ways, that's a hard limit. And Raj, you talked about before the size of this fund and the market opportunity. It seems that uh, towards the latter half of last year, there was a, a, a large amount of funds in this pre-IPO space come to market. Um, have you found that um, affecting any valuations or you know, do you think the market's starting to get a little bit crowded in the area you're operating with, with more of these funds coming to market? I don't think it's getting crowded. I think it's a good thing that there are more. What it allows, a lot of Australian founders and entrepreneurs and CEOs that are unlisted, it gives them more options, right? So if you reflect back to seven or eight years ago, there was no option to really raise capital here that shorter duration. They needed to go to the US. In many ways, us, Alium Alpha, and some of our uh, peers that are in the same space, we're competing with the US venture community. Right? So the US venture community is amazing. Those brands are terrific, but they will in some ways disempower some companies because they own such large parts of businesses. That's just not what we do, right? We will always tend to be a minority. We want great founders to take up capital and end up being listed. Some of our peers, you know, who we are friendly with and we co-invest with, you know, we're not competing with each other. Um, in that, you know, we've got ideas where we do co-invest with them. But if I look at our top 10 portfolio holdings, only two of them have got some of those peers that you're talking about, which demonstrates that the, the, the environment and the depth is pretty significant. All right, so we're meeting companies, Perth, Darwin, Adelaide, Brisbane, Queensland, you know, all parts of Queensland. You know, we had a company out of Goulburn. There is an appetite for people out of university, people that are in the big banks and big consumer companies, they want to raise capital because they want to build businesses. We want to be an investor and some of our peers will be in investors in some of those other ones. So I don't think, David, it's getting competitive. I think it's really good 
if you've got an investment idea and you're executing and you want to raise capital, this is a, this is pretty good for them. And Raj, how would you encourage potential investors or investors into a fund like this to think about the type of return that's appropriate for investments in this space? I think people think about early stage venture capital and they have an IRR or a money on money type of return that they think makes sense. Uh, for latter stage private equity, they equally have a bracket that they think makes sense for that type of exposure. For this for this area that's sort of in between around that space, what, what do you think is appropriate for people to think about as an appropriate rate of return for the type of risk they're taking on in this area? When we started, and it even holds today, four years later into our fifth year of investing, we'd always target a 20 to 25% annual return. And as it stands today, we've exceeded what we said we would do, but we're going to maintain that target. And the reason we feel confident with that is we have the ability to invest in assets that are listed. Um, we have the ability also to short stocks. So one of the defining characteristics that sets us apart from some of our peers is when markets start to have a bit of a wobble and get tricky, which happened in the fourth quarter of 2018, which happened um, in March and April of this year, um, we did not have a tough time. So in the fourth quarter of 2018, we were in fact up. Um, in that period between Feb and, and April of this year, where it was tough on some people, again, we were flat. So if someone considers the Allium Alpha Fund, they should be thinking about it in the context of three things. Finding great businesses that are unlisted at great prices that will become listed assets at even better prices and they get a return. At the same time, in the listed space, we wanna find deep value where there's a catalyst, where we think they're forgotten and hopefully we're getting in at a time where you'll get a good return on a 12 to 18 month view. And then finally, when it comes to providing some protection for the portfolio, we're constantly thinking about hedging, we're constantly thinking about shorting stocks which provide a natural hedge for some of our long private positions. So since inception, David, you know, we've only had two months where we've been down less than 5%. Um, we've never been down more than 5% in, in any one single month. And I hope as a group and as a fund that we continue to hold that. And, and what sort of limits do you have on the, or, or what sort of guardrails do you have, if any, about how short you can be at any particular one time? There's no limit. Again, it's about understanding how to invest and what makes sense. And as I said earlier, uh, we want to be relatively distributed. So we would never, ever have a maximum hedge that's short that can negate the whole portfolio. What we would do is make sure that the hedge is generating a return to hedge part of the portfolio. But ultimately, we are investors that want companies to list. So that means we will naturally always be long. But when markets look extended, when there is some type of political aberration, then we will run those hedges slightly more aggressively. But it's never ever a 50-50. And Raj, I think that's a reasonable segue into the markets and how you see them at the moment. I think there's quite a few people scratching their heads at some of the valuations that are being seen in public markets where, you know, 100 times 
uh, forward earnings seems to be uh, reasonably common. Um, and I think part, partly some of that is being explained by people due to the relative valuation of cash and you know, the, what happens when you discount future cash flows by lower and lower amounts. But how are you feeling about current valuations at the moment and how the market's positioned looking forward? To us, private valuations seem quite extended for some businesses that are quite nascent. And that's reflected in 2020. We only we, we made less than five private investments because we felt that some of those businesses were asking public-like valuations for not having fully proven out their businesses. So we feel the private space does need to contract a little bit. However, there are some really good businesses in the private space, which might have high valuations, but it's likely given their strong growth that they may extend out a little bit more. So I think overall in private, we need to see a contraction, but I think the bigger and best ones in private will probably become more expensive. That's no different in public, right? In the public space, you know, you've got Amazon, Apple, you know, trading at pretty extended valuations. Zoom is the classic, um, but these companies are still growing. So I think there is a trade-off as an investor where it is well-managed, where growth is relatively certain and it's triple digit, people will overpay. However, the companies that want high valuations for sub-market growth, that's really got to, that's got to normalize. And that's where I, and we as a firm struggle because we think valuations do look high, but some businesses will probably move to the far right of the bell curve. Businesses that are towards the right of the bell curve that, are, that don't have that growth, they need to come back to mean. So I think there are going to be a couple of phases in calendar 21, whereby you get pullbacks, whereby quality does deserve a premium. Right now, everyone's getting a premium, which is just not fair. And Raj, what did you notice uh, last year and during COVID, um, you know, still in at the start of 21 here, um, how has that affected the adoption or take up of technology in your view? And, and what does that mean for investments and thinking about investments? Technology adoption has always been there. As we know, um, it's just accelerated during COVID. And the best reflection of that is, in, uh, I'll talk about it in terms of some of our companies. Um, one of our larger positions is a business called Koala, which hopefully some of your listeners have heard of. You know, they started out you know, six years ago as a pure mattress company, which sounds grossly dull. As it stands today, it's a diversified global furniture company. You know, their larger markets are Australia and Japan, and they're moving into Korea recently. And from being just mattresses, they've got almost 25 products from you know, tables to chairs to TV cabinets, etc. We got really concerned in Feb, March, April that nothing was going to happen here. How would these, how would this company ad adopt and adapt? To, to the environment. And Mitch Taylor and Danny Millam are the two founders of that businesses, both in their early 30s. What we learned from them in that period was just astounding. Just the way that they automated all their staff to work effectively remotely was 
it was extraordinary. I'm sure for Coda, you know, we, you would have lagged a little bit. At Allium, we certainly lagged a little bit. But these people are born to be nimble, right? So when they when they face a problem, they have multiple solutions that they can apply to it. So they had all their staff effectively go remote within 24 hours and be fully operational and functional. They were liaising with all their suppliers from manufacturers to all their logistics providers in a seamless way. And they had some of their best days in the month of March. When you would think no one's gonna be doing anything, they accelerated their rate of growth and adoption. Um, now, I don't think that that's going to revert back to normal, as in the, the old normal. The new normal will be you know, following some best practices that some of these businesses have. So they were doing remote board meetings. They were really successful, shorter duration, high impact. They were doing in technology, a lot of companies do stand-ups where they stand up in the morning and they talk about what each person is doing that day in the technology team. They were doing that remotely and it was incredibly effective. All the tools that Atlassian has created and Salesforce have created, they came to the fore, right? All technology that has been in market for the last 5, 10, 20 years just accelerated. You know, we as a group didn't even know that Teams was part of Microsoft, right? We were expecting that we would have to use Skype, right? So now it's either Zoom, Teams, and WebEx, right? All these tools have just been a godsend to allow all companies to be more efficient, more effective, and get better outcomes. Raj, uh, what was you referenced uh, your exposure to Jack Ma, considering what he was going to do? That obviously went on to become Ali, Alibaba and has been very topical with Ant Financial and the, the very close to listing of that. Um, what was what were some of the key things you learnt or can remember from that period of time uh, that that sort of resonated with you? Yeah, um, I recall that meeting it was level sixty seven of Chung Kong Center in Hong Kong, in the Goldman office. The first thing that I recall, David, is, you know, short men can get very far. Um, he was shorter than me and I was astounded. You know, here we are doing this meeting with someone and, you know, looking back, you know, he built, you know, such an amazing business. But I think when it comes down to actually what mattered, he was willing to take a risk very early because he's not a technologist, he was a teacher. He saw this opportunity set and he went for it. I think Jack was one of the early movers who did that. But if we look back you know, to that point, I mean, that was 1998. Between 1998 and here we are in 2021, if I look at our portfolio, that's what all of our founders do. They see something and they take a risk. When I was, you know, in my early part of my career, it was about mitigating risk, not taking risk. So in technology, you are creating new things. You're changing consumer behavior. You're changing enterprise behavior. That requires taking risk. So you'll often meet businesses and go, that sounds like a dumb idea. But then you look back and go, you know, lay by in Afterpay, what a great idea. It was timing. It was positioning. So I learned that from Jack, take, take a risk. Um, the second thing that I learned is just listen and talk to everyone. By reaching out to our firm, he would have reached out to many other firms, which he did as well. What he was doing is 
he was gathering information. He was learning, right? And that whole adage in technology of um, trial, test, fail, trial, test, fail, everyone does it, right? Everyone should do it. If you don't do it, you won't make a mistake. If you won't make a mistake, you won't learn. Um, I think in Alibaba, he did it. In Ant Financially, did it. Um, he was just extraordinary at wanting to do something and not working, then pivoting and making it work. Um, that was the second takeaway for me. And Raj, most people would be, well, those who are familiar with venture capital investing or private equity investment are used to a structure where they're locked up for a number of years, typically five to eight years, even up to 10, where they put their money in. It gets called over a number of years, then their money comes out. Can you talk about the structure, lockup and liquidity with regard to the Allium Fund, just some mechanics of how it operates? We were acutely aware that we are not venture capitalists, Jason, Michael and myself. We're more from the hedge fund technology investing world. So when we set up the fund, we wanted to make sure that we had the ability to provide investors with flexibility because that's where we came from. So as we stand today, we have quarterly liquidity, right? So for any investor that invests, they can effectively take their money out in 13 months, one month's notice, and then you get a quarter each quarter. What that allows investors to do is, number one, they have liquidity with Allium. At the same time, we are always on our toes. If we're generating good returns, investors should continue to reinvest with us. Um, we also then, as because of our structure, David, we're investing differently. We don't want to invest in businesses that are mega risky, that are mega early, that are pre-revenue, because they require a greater gestation period. All of our businesses are revenue generating, you know, a third of our portfolio is profit generating. We want our, our portfolio to be turning. Now, will we get a slight mismatch? We will. But what's been surprising to us in the last four years is the liquidity in the private markets in many ways is as good as the public markets. And to give you an idea, we had five private companies that we sold out of in 2020 because they delayed their IPO or they didn't want to do an IPO or they have a different type of investor or they were doing a pivot. And we exited all of them, right? So for our investors, we're trying and aiming to get ASX listings within 12 to 18 months. So you get that match with liquidity. But if we don't get that match, we're trying to churn our portfolio to ensure that we're investing within the parameters of current liquidity of you know, quarterly for investors. And Raj, who's providing that liquidity? Is that other Australian venture investors or private equity firms? Um, who's taking that out where you have a company that's pivoted or has delayed an IPO or decided it doesn't want to go down that route any, anymore? Yeah, so we've had two businesses this year that have been bought by Amazon. Right, so that's been lucky. They're small business. Well, actually, one's a US business. We were co-invested with Mike Cannon Brooks from Atlassian. The other business is a small e-commerce business in Australia. Both of those were bought by Amazon. So we get liquidity, right? Um, so you, you get corporate liquidity. The second area has been to sell back into the cap table. So there'll be other investors that become highly enthusiastic, have duration, which is greater than ours. We're selling back to them, often at premiums to what we bought in at. The third is 
some areas and some businesses that we invested in kind of become in vogue and the founders and the boards then say, actually, we want to stay private for longer and create more value. They bring in some new investors and we're selling out to them. So we've had a re- 2020 in particular was a good year of selling out um, to a multitude of different types of investors. And surprisingly, David, it, it, it's, it's very liquid. I mean, rates are low, you know, cash is cheap. You know, there is a lot of capital out there. People want good, invest- uh, good investments. And what does 21 look forward to it for you at the moment? Uh, What's your outlook at 2021? What's your, what what are you excited about? I hope that we continue to have the same returns that we promised and delivered to investors. So that 20 to 25% target. Um, There's three areas that are exciting us um, from a thematic standpoint, the number, the number, the first trend is something I want to call Internet of Behaviors. Have you heard of that? No. Right, so everyone's familiar with IoT, which is Internet of Things. Yep, Internet of Things. So I yes. think Internet of Behaviors becomes a big theme. And what that means is using data to change behaviors. So if you think about all the digital dust that's out there that spans our digital and physical world, I think that information can be used very effectively through feedback loops. So I'll give you a practical example. So if you think about a commercial vehicle, it's got telematics to monitor driving behaviors, you know, braking, aggressive turning, et cetera. Companies should be using that data to improve driver performance, routing, safety, and then ultimately insurance, right? So people are working on it, but I think it becomes real for all of us. As so this is this is much more of a practical adaptation right. of big data right. of all we Because everyone talks about oh data, data is gold, right? Data is gold, yep. but no one's used data proper, properly, and you don't need to use all data, right? You need to be smart about it. So I think that IOB, the Internet of Behaviors, becomes a big thematic this year, and that feedback loop. Um, the second one, which has always been front and center for us, but it, there's just not a lot of companies, is around cybersecurity. Right, it's it's not new. It's not an emerging technology, but it's always evolving. And if you think um, about the constant threats, and as long as hackers are around, cybersecurity will always be front and center. And I know we, as a firm, spent more on it last year, protecting ourselves. So it's our insurance. Uh, but Gartner, you know, you know, they released something over the Christmas period talking about twenty twenty one. You know, cybersecurity is going to be a $6 trillion industry. There's got to be beneficiaries there. And you're seeing many opportunities in the Australian market. Uh, we've had a few podcasts with some uh, Israeli-based investors, um, and, and cybersecurity is, is very strong out of yeah. that region uh, for all sorts of reasons we can talk about. Uh, have you seen cybersecurity as a strength we've from Australia? Seen companies that have had humans or people or technicians implement products that are from other countries what we want to see is australia come up with their own so we're still waiting for that and i think given um the strength of some of our greatest assets in atlassian candor and others i think it will become a more important thematic over the next couple of years but today to answer your question it's been very people-centric i think it'll become very product-centric Um, So we're looking forward to that. And then the third and final theme, David, for us is I think M&A and IPOs will continue in 21. 
as we all know, the stated long-term low interest rate policy of the Fed, that generally maxes out all DCF models. So that creates this frenzy around high growth companies. I don't think that goes away in 2021. There's a chance of it with inflation and rates, but I think it's pushed out maybe another 12 to 18 months. And then you've got retail investors using platforms like Robinhood. That creates this whole passive investment wave. And I think those high multiples that we talked about in public markets, they'll probably hold. We'll probably get a couple of um, pullbacks, but I still think the direction will be to the Northeast. Um, I do think acquirers like Amazon, Apple, um, Facebook, Salesforce, you know, these companies will need to be acquisitive. And I think that will mean that private assets, good private assets will still remain elevated in terms of their valuation. So we as an organization in, uh, at Allium and specifically in the Alpha Fund, we're super price sensitive. We won't chase. We want to pay a really good price to protect our downside, but we'd love M&A and IPOs to continue and we think they will in 2021. Raj, thank you very much for your time. That's been really informative. Um, I think it's a really good summary of the strategy for our listeners. Uh, if there's anything else you'd like to add or you think it's worthwhile for our listeners to keep in mind when thinking about the Allium Fund or in this space, now would be a good time uh, to add it. If not, I will thank you there and, 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 and thank you for your time. David, I'd like to finish on two things. I'd like to welcome new investors to the fund as we get to the closing stages of the Allium Alpha Fund in its current form. In investing in Allium, you are using us as your custodians to, in fact, back great entrepreneurs and founders. The onus is on us to find them, and hopefully we will, and they become great businesses globally. And then the second thing I want to say is we're finishing our newsletter for 2020, and there's a couple of things that I've written in there which I think people should think about. And number one is... Do people think Elon Musk will become the richest person on the planet sometime in 2021? Have a think about it. There's a chance through Tesla and SpaceX he does. And the other one, which I think is really interesting, is will Airbnb buy a hotel chain? Watch out. Watch this space. Well, we'll look out for those two things. Raj, thank you very much for your time. Have a terrific 2021. Uh, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.